Well, good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter uh, 6 this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Thanks, Jordan, for leading us in that last song. And, uh, you know, I want to mention this because, you know, praise God for, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, that's a song that Jordan wrote, that God wrote through him. So praise God for that uh, gift that God's given Jordan. And, uh, you know, he's humble. He's not going to mention that, but I think it's worth mentioning. And uh, look forward. Just uh, awesome to see God raising up uh, people in our midst uh, in different ways. And so that's the uh, first time that that was led in a congregational setting was in our 9 o'clock service. And that's the second time it's ever been shared in this type of setting. So look forward to continuing to sing that and for that to be a part of our uh, songs that we sing and worship God through here at Schindler Drive. So uh, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 6 um, this morning. And a couple months ago... A Christian pastor and author, Tim Keller, uh, went home to be with Jesus. Uh, he was a pastor of a church in New York City that he planted for his pastor there for many, many years and has written many books throughout uh, the years. Uh, one of the books that he wrote, Prodigal God, is one of the most influential, impactful books that I've ever read in my life uh, on the prodigal son. And he, uh, he, he's written a lot of good books. And this came from uh, one of the books that he wrote called Counterfeit Gods, another great book. Uh, Tim Keller said this, You don't get to decide to worship. Everyone worships something. The only choice you get is what to worship. I'm going to read that again. You don't get to, get to decide to worship. Everyone worships something. The only choice you get is what to worship. And his point there is that all of us are worshipers, right? And a lot of people throughout the history of Christianity have made a similar point that he made right there, that all of us are born hardwired worshipers. We don't have to learn how to worship. We come uh, right out of the baggage worshiping something, right? And, you know, someone on, uh, he was on Twitter when he was alive and he posted that quote. And, you know, in every classroom throughout the history of school and college, there's always seems to be the one kid who's trying to stump the teacher, always trying to stump the professor. And so, uh, Tim Keller put that quote on Twitter, and there was a response from someone that said this to Tim Keller. He said, from, about that quote, he said, Who said it first, you or David Wallace? Not trying to be obnoxious, uh, just to, he makes a similar point in a writing that he wrote called This Is Water. All right, and I love Tim Keller's response. He would occasionally interact with people on Twitter or X, whatever it's called now. And he said this, this was his response back to that guy. He said, I got it from the Bible. Mainly from the Old Testament. One of its main points, period. All right? And his point, I, I think it's not hard for us to pick up that if you read the Bible, if you read the Old Testament, we understand that God has designed, in a way, as image bearers, we're hardwired to worship, right? We all worship something. We're natural born worshipers. It's who we are, all right? So, it's who we are. We're worshipers, but it's actually who we worship and what we worship that we have to give really careful attention to. And this is a passage that really helps us do that. It helps us give really careful attention as Christians as to who we worship, why we worship. And so we are going to uh, walk through this part of David's story today. Uh, last week we left off with David on the thrones, reigning as king over all of Israel, and he's decided to make Jerusalem the capital of Israel, the capital of his kingdom, and it's going to be uh, based there 
uh, politically, but he also wants to base worship there as well. So what he's doing is he's trying to situate some things and get some things where they belong. And one major thing that he's trying to do in making this the center of worship in the nation is to transport and move the Ark of the Covenant to the new capital, to uh, Jerusalem. So it's a really intense story. It has a lot to teach us about worshiping God. All right, so with that in mind, let's stand and let's begin to read in Second Samuel chapter 6. I'm going to read a portion of it, and like we've done over the last several weeks, we'll walk back to the beginning of the passage and walk through it and, uh, and learn together. Verse 14, And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And all the Baptist people get nervous. <laughs> and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city... Of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in, the, in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Verse 18, And David, when David finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, we know that this morning that it's only with proper revelation of who you are that we can rightly worship you in spirit and in truth. And so we know that you've communicated who you are through your holy, sufficient, infallible, perfect word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us over these next few moments as a community of faith here gathering together in corporate worship this morning, together with our Bibles open, to understand it, that you teach us through it, and that we'd understand more clearly who you are so that we can more rightly worship you for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this passage, as I mentioned at this point, David is king of both Judah and Israel. And we just, a moment ago when I read that passage, when we stood and read, uh, we just dropped into this awesome worship moment in the life of David, all right? This awesome worship service. If you read some of the surrounding uh, verses there, and we will, of this awesome worship service that's happening collectively, collectively with the nation, with the people of Israel, all right? So we've just dropped into this really incredible worship service in the life of David, but we're going to need to back up and understand that there were some significant things that needed to happen in David's life and some significant things that the nation of Israel needed to learn for, in order for them to reach that point of experiencing that awesome, true worship of God, All right, so we're going to un- try to seek to understand what those things are because they're going to apply to our life as well. So we're going to begin in verse 2 to understand what some of those were. All right, so let's begin in verse 2. And David arose and went from all the, went with all the people who were with him from uh, Baal Judah to bring up the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned uh, on the cherubim. All right, so let's pause there and ask a couple questions. All right, number one, it mentions the ark there. I already mentioned the ark a couple times. What is the ark? All right, now some people are like, yeah, preacher, you don't even have to stop there. All right, because I have seen several times the Christian, really good Christian documentary uh, on the ark called Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so I'm fully aware of what this is. All right, so awesome movie, loose theology. All right, in the Old Testament, the ark of the covenant was a box constructed of wood covered with gold inside and out. It had a, a lid on it made of gold attached uh, to that lid were two figures of cherubim, angels, a type of angels that were facing each other on top of that lid. The wings of those angels stretched up 
and uh, almost high enough and curved into where they almost touched each other above that lid. And uh, in the space uh, above the cover and in between those wings, that's where uh, God was symbolically understood to dwell. And that was called the mercy seat. Uh, that mercy seat was called the mercy seat because once a year in the nation of Israel, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in and sprinkle in the Holy of Holies where they kept the Ark of the Covenant, would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the nation. And it was a, it was a very important part of the nation of Israel, part of their worship. Right? It was a very important piece of furniture within the tabernacle. Right? It was the tangible symbol of the presence and glory and power of God among his people. All right, so that's what it is. So the second question is, why is David transporting it? All right, why is he having to go somewhere to get it, to bring it to where he knows it belongs? All right, well, um, in, in verse 2, what's going on there? Well, several years before, I've got to give you some background. It's going to be a Cliff Notes version, so hang on tight. All right, buckle up. Here we go. Several years before, we read in 1 Samuel chapter 4 that the Israelites were in a battle against the Philistines, all right? And they took the Ark of the Covenant into that battle as kind of a good luck charm. Not a good idea, right? God's not going to be manipulated, and so they lose the battle. The Philistines don't only beat them really badly, they also steal the Ark of the Covenant. Well, it looks like a really cool piece of furniture. They take it as some sort of trophy. They take it back to a Philistine city called Ashdod. They put it in the house of Dagon, which was a religious building, where this statue, this Philistine fall God stood. It represented. It was represented as a half man, half fish God. All right, so it's like Philistine, Dagon, merman God that they served. All right, it was a statue in this house. So they brought bring the uh, Ark of the Covenant in there as a kind of a trophy, as a way to say, "Hey, our God helped us beat your God in battle." All right. Well, the next morning they put the Ark of the Covenant house of Dagon. Next morning they walk in. The Ark of the Covenant's there, untouched, and that. Statue of Dagon's on his face. And so the priest, Philistine priests run in and they're like, Oh, Dagon, you can't be on your face. And so they lift him back up. And uh, the next morning they come in and he's on his face again. All right. And his hands are chopped off and his head's chopped off. All right. It's kind of an eerie moment, right? You know, you're worshiping a weak God. Like that, that's a God that belongs more in a life alert commercial, right? Than that you should be worshiping. I've fallen and I can't get up. Some of you young folks are going to have to go YouTube that. All right. Old commercial. So that's a little creepy, and, and then also this disease begins to spread throughout Ashdod, and it says the people begin to break out with boils, all right? This is, this is actually true right here. The Hebrew word for, that, for boils is actually hemorrhoids, all right? You probably did not expect to hear that word when you came to church today, all right? So really, just nasty diseases are spreading, and rats are overrunning the city. A lot of crazy stuff's going on, and, uh, and they start to get really uncomfortable in the town of Ashdod having this ark. So what do they do? They box it up, they wrap it up, and they ship it to another Philistine city called Gath, right? That's right. They're going to do exactly like some of you are going to do for a white elephant gift party this Christmas. They re-gifted the Ark of the Covenant, all right? Sent it to the city of Gath where diseases break out, same stuff happens. Gath, they re-gift it to somebody else, another city, another Philistine city. It happens again, all right? Well, the Philistines finally get the clue. We probably don't need to be hanging on to this. We need to give this back to Israel. So they construct this really nice uh, cart to transport the ark on, and they, uh, they hook the cows up to this cart that's holding the ark, and they're arguing, these Philistine people are arguing over who's going to drive this cart back to Israel to drop the ark back off. Well, as they're arguing, the cows just kind of supernaturally turn and just take off towards Israel. All right? They take off towards Israel, they travel into Israel, and they go right up to the house of a man named Shemesh. 
Shemesh, an Israelite. He knows what the ark is. He brings it inside. It seems like he's careful with it. He understands that there's some ways that you handle the ark. Well, some of his family members go into the room that he has it stored in, and they sneak into the room, and they're like, oh, cool, look, and they lift the lid, and they die, all right? They should have watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, or that wouldn't have happened to them, all right? And so Shemesh, he regifts it to a guy named Abinadad, where it stays hidden for 20 years, where it stays stored away for 20 years, pretty much the entire reign of Saul, which says a lot about Saul's reign, does it not? Saul was way more focused on and interested in his own glory and the kingdom centering around him than he was centering the kingdom around in his own life, around the presence of God. But now all these years later, we got another king rising to power. Or who's on the throne, actually, now. you got David. He's committed to being a different kind of king. He's committed to establishing a different kind of kingdom, a kingdom not centered on himself, not centered on man, but a kingdom centered on God. And that brings us to 2 Samuel chapter 6. All right, we made it. So 2 Samuel chapter 6. That's where we find David transporting this ark from the house of Abinadab to Jerusalem, the new capital, the center of the nation where he wants to restore the worship of the one and only true God in Israel. But on that journey, there's some lessons that David needs to learn. There's some lessons that the Israelites need to learn. There's some lessons that we even need to learn as they're transporting this ark about what it means to be a true worshiper of God. So the first truth we see in this passage is that being a true worshiper of God, number one, involves first being gripped and shook by the holiness of God. Shaken by the holiness of God. So they're taking the ark up to Jerusalem. And let's read what happens starting in verse 3. All right, let's begin to read in verse 3. And I'm going to read several verses, so hang with me. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill in Uzzah in Ohio. The sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel celebrating before the Lord. Seems like things are going great with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen stumbled and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to the city of David. But David took it inside the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. All right, so let's stop there. So things seem to be going great as they're transporting the ark at first, right? The band's playing. Uh, the people are praising. Uh, they're taking the ark from Jerusalem and or to Jerusalem. And, and generally speaking, it kind of looks like they're doing a lot of things right. It seems, generally speaking, that David seems to be trying to go through the right motions to get the ark to where it belongs in the center of the nation. And then all of a sudden, as they're en route, all of a sudden there's commotion in the crowd. And there's people gathering around the cart where the ark was. And next to the cart, Uzzah, the son of Abinadad, who was helping escort the ark, is on the ground. Because the oxen has stumbled. He saw the ark begin to slide. He simply stretched out his hand trying to make sure that it didn't fall down onto the ground. And he's dead. And he's dead. 
Now, notice David's response. David's, it just, it's very clear. It says that he's angry. This shakes David up. It shakes him up so much, he just stops. He stops the operation. He parks the ark. He's afraid to move forward anymore. He's like, we're not bringing this ark into Jerusalem. Like, no way. Not after that, right? He's, he's very shook at what's happened right here. And he parks the ark at the house of Obed-Edom. And he's confused. He, it's, it freaks him out. And again, it just says that he's flat out mad. By the way, don't you love the honesty of the Bible? Don't you love that right here, God's word doesn't gloss over the real emotions that David is experiencing right here. It says he's mad. I want you to know this morning, if the Bible offends you at times, if the Bible makes you mad, if at times your own emotions go against the grain of what the Bible seems to be communicating, you're not alone. You're not the first person to ever feel that way. David right here felt those real emotions, right? Now, eventually we're going to see that he, he, he gets to trusting God. And it's important that we come back to that moment as a true follower of Jesus Christ. But you need to know that you're able to be real with the emotions that you experience. In fact, it's through you dealing with those things that you can actually experience a sanctifying work in your life. But that's what David experiences right here. He's mad. And let's just kind of be with him in this moment for, a mo- for, for just a few moments. Let's try to put ourselves in his shoes. I mean, he's mad. He, in, we would probably feel the same way in some different ways. I mean, for all intents and purposes, it looks like Uzzah was just trying to help, right? David's like, he's mad. He's like, it's almost like he's saying, it doesn't feel like the punishment fits the crime right here. Right? I mean, what's the big deal? But God, what he's doing through a very extreme and memorable and tragic moment right here is communicating an extremely significant truth to the nation of Israel about his own character that's going to reveal something about our own nature, that he is holy, holy, holy. And there is no authority above him. He's a holy creator, the sovereign, holy creator, ruler of all things. And if that is who he is, let's just logically think about this. If that truly is who he is, then he must be obeyed. And God has dictated in the Torah exactly how the ark was to be carried. It was only to be carried with uh, poles that slid through these rings on the side of the ark so that no one would touch it. And instead of doing that, what do they do? They build a new cart. Right? They, they're trying to be just like, they're trying to innovate just like and improve the commands of God like the Philistines are doing, right? The only difference is that they know better. They have the law expressing the desire of their holy, living, true God, but they've completely ignored the prescription that He's given them in His holy word how to handle it, how to transport it, how to carry it, and the consequences are dire. And maybe your reaction is still right there with David. Man, it just still seems a little severe. I mean, don't you think? I mean, it's, it's, I'm kind of with David. It's a little severe. The punishment seems way more severe than the crime. And so many of the pe- people in the world would agree with you right there. Would look at this story and say the same thing. Punishment doesn't match the crime. That's because so many people are out of touch with the severity of the crime. Because we naturally have way too high a view of our sinful selves and way too low a view of a holy God in our hearts. And that was Uzzah's problem. He was unaware of the depth of his own sinfulness. He's unaware simultaneously of the depth of his own sinfulness. And he's unaware of the distinctness and the otherness and the holiness of God. And he sees this ark begin to slide and it's about to fall onto the ground. And he wants to, he's like, wants to protect the ark. And this is where he makes the mortal mistake. He assumes his hand is less filthy than the dirt on the ground. But the dirt on the ground, the earth has never consciously rebelled against its creator, has it? 
So many don't understand the judgment of God. So many think in moments like this, in God's word or in life, the punishment doesn't match the crime because so many are not in tune and dialed in with the wickedness and the sinfulness of their own soul. Today it is not, let's just pull this into this day and age. Today it is not hard to find people who think that the idea that a decent law-abiding citizen who may be guilty sure of some failures but who isn't a Christian would be deserving of going to a place like hell. Would be deserving of eternal damnation and separation from God. It seems like the punishment doesn't match the crime. That's because... Your eyes have yet to see the awesome holiness of God, who's exalted, who's supreme, who is judged, who Scripture says, and this is the only characteristic attribute that Scripture says this about God, holy, 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 who we will all stand before, who we all stand before. And I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Without Christ in our life and interceding for us, all of us stand before exposed in our sin, guilty of cosmic treason against our Creator God, deserving of being judged as sinful enemies of God. All of us in our sin have committed cosmic treason against God. Romans 10 says, There is no one good, no, not one. God is good. God is holy. God is righteous. We are sinful. And to take His holiness flippantly and lightly is a terrible mistake. That's what we're learning here. That's what David and Israel learned in a very unforgettable way that shakes them to their core. They're gripped by the awesome holiness of God and it put them in tune with their sinfulness and put them in their place. It is impossible for you to ever be a true worshiper of God without first being gripped by the holiness of God and seeing your need to be saved from the wrath of God that's coming crashing down on your life. Now, that's not politically correct, but that's biblically correct. It's impossible to be a true worshiper of God without first being gripped by the holiness of God. But the holiness of God isn't where this story ends. Being gripped by the holiness of God alone isn't what... Remember the worship service we read about at the very beginning where David's dancing and he's uh, truly worshiping God? Being gripped by the holiness of God alone isn't what propels him into that moment of genuine worship of God. It's him realizing that, yes, God is awesomely holy, but he's also amazingly gracious. Not just knowing that, but experiencing that in his life. Number two, we learn that we will never experience true worship of God until, yes, we first are gripped by the holiness of God and see our need for salvation, but then we are captivated and experience the grace of God. Look again at verse 12. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So the ark ends up at the house of Obed-Edom. It stays there for three months. And David gets word that his house has been blessed. All right. So where Uzzah experiences God's judgment for disrespecting God's holiness and disobeying God's word... And taking God's holiness lightly, right here, Obed-Edom experiences God's blessing, God's goodness, God's grace, right? And the text doesn't exactly say, it doesn't say that Obed-Edom did anything special. It doesn't say a whole lot about why he's being blessed, and I think that's for good reason, right? We we, we can assume that he is not mistreating uh, the, the laws of God and the way that he's treating the ark. We just don't know. What we do know is this text seems to be wanting to make this clear to us that the blessing of God and the favor of God is just simply pouring out on this man who we know nothing about. 
And it's showing us something about the favor and the grace and the blessing of God. That it's not earned. That it's simply given. And so... David, who's just collided with this, with these truths, he's just been shaken to his core by these truths that God's holy, that he's supreme, that he's other, that God is just, and that we're unholy and unrighteous and deserving of God's judgment, is now experiencing the truth that, yes, God is holy, but God is also gracious. God is also merciful. He isn't just a God of judgment. He is also a God of blessing and grace and that truth. Those two things colliding with the life of David. His holiness, need for a Savior, the grace of God in his life is what changes and transforms David. And that's also what changes and transforms us. This undeserved blessing and favor that's poured out onto the house of Obed-Edom. The sacrifices that are offered in verses 13 and 17. There's sacrifices here that the nation of Israel that are make, that are making they're making under the leadership of David. They're all pointing us forward to something. All right. Think about what those sacrifices in the Old Testament, those sacrifices that the people of Israel are offering. Think about what that is. What's happening right there? What's happening in those sacrifices in the Old Testament is God's providing for David and the people of Israel a way through the sacrifices for those sinful people to safely come close to His presence. God's making a way for their sins to be atoned for. And it's all signifying. In fact, the entire sacrificial uh, system that is in the Old Testament, it all points us to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice that Jesus would ultimately make on our behalf. Laying down his life on the cross. Taking the punishment onto his life that we deserve. Do you understand this morning that in Christ, God has provided a way for us to not be held accountable for our sins? Because the punishment has already been poured onto Christ Jesus. Uzzah, here's another way to think about it. Uzzah was struck dead for touching the holy presence of God. Jesus was struck dead so that we could enter in and experience and encounter the presence of God. And Jesus is the only doorway into that. Jesus is the only doorway into a right relationship with a holy God, the sinful person. Only through Christ. Only through Christ. So I just want to time out there for someone, ah, here we go, holiness of God. People deserve hell. People deserve to go to hell without Christ. People deserve, there's a lot of criticism about that type of preaching. There's a lot of criticism about the proclamation of that kind of truth. Are you missing the truth that God in love has made a doorway for you to not have to go to that place? For you to not have to have the wrath of God crashing down on your life, crushing you for all of eternity? There are only two ways for your sins to be paid for. They can be judged in you for all of eternity, or they can be judged in Christ on the cross in your place. As you turn to Christ and you trust that Jesus is there in your place, that you should receive the wrath of God, that you should receive the just judgment for your sin given out by a holy, righteous God, but yet Jesus is there taking the death penalty that I deserve. Yet Jesus is there in my place, absorbing every last drop of the wrath of God for our sin. That is a gracious gift. Yes, it is a hard truth that all of us are cosmic criminals, guilty of cosmic treason, deserving of death in our sin. And we can't change that. We can't wipe the sin stain off of our heart. We can't do it with enough Bible reading. We can't do it enough church attending. We can't do it with enough praying. We can't do it with enough reading. Our works of our hands are not enough. 
That is a hard truth. You must humble yourself to receive. But once you do and you turn to the cross and you believe that Jesus took that penalty in your place, not only have you been gripped with the holiness of God, now you've been captivated by His grace. It's a gracious gift given to all who receive it by faith. And when you receive God's grace, when you encounter God's blessing and favor and mercy, it changes everything. We see that happening in David's life. Tim Keller, I read a lot of Tim Keller's uh, writings on this passage this week. And he says this, David learned first in this story that God's more holy than he thought. And then here David learns that God's more gracious than he thought. And then Keller notes, this is what radically changed David. And this is certainly a message for lost folks today who don't have a relationship with Christ, who have never turned from their sin and trusted Christ. You can receive Christ today. You can receive eternal life. You can receive forgiveness. You can receive a relationship with God that's right. You can receive that this morning by faith. And a radical transformation will begin to happen in your life from the inside out. But let's remember, let's remember something about David here. David... Before this story, prior to this happening, was already in touch with his sin at times. He he understood his sinfulness. Prior to this moment, he's experienced God's grace in his life. He's he's experienced the, 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 the reality that he's a sinner. He's experienced God's grace in his life. What happened? Here's what happened. A little time's gone by with someone like David, who's a great example, but just like us, with a nature like us, is prone to wander. And here he is going through all the right motions. And yet in his, in his heart, his heart is cooled towards the truth that a holy God is also a gracious God. That's what's happened. And he's needing a sober reminder right here that yes, God is holy, but God is gracious and that changes everything. His heart's grown cool to that. And so that's why he's just going through the motions. That's why he's not stepping in as people are presuming on God's holiness. That's why he's not stepping in as the nation of Israel is treating God like any other God. Lowercase G-O-D. Kind of just treating him the way that they want to treat him. Kind of customizing his, his words and his commands to fit their life the way that they want, they, they want to fit it in. There's no real passion to submit to his word. They're taking things lightly. And they're even blending in more with the culture of the world than they are the culture of the kingdom of God and the way that they're handling the ark and building that cart. And if it can happen to David, church, it can happen to any of us. So I think it's worth just stopping to ask this this morning. Are you in a season of presuming on the holiness of God? Are you treating His Word flippantly? Does your life more reflect the kingdom of this world more than it does the kingdom of God and the way you talk and the way you interact with people and the way you interact in your workplace and go about your work and your career the way you entertain yourself with your entertainment choices in your relationships if your heart's grown cold to this you need a good dose of the same medicine that david needed and that's a reminder a deep real soul-shaking reminder that god is awesomely holy but that holy god who should crush us because of our sinfulness has been amazingly gracious to us has not given us what we deserve and continues to shell out mercy and mercy and mercy and grace again. And He'll never stop. And when those two truths hit us, the weight that God's holy, but He has come through and given me grace, the result that we see in David's life is a comprehensive obedience to God's Word. If you read the parallel passage in First Chronicles 15, 
There it tells us that when David experiences the goodness of God here, that he immediately says, let's finish this. Let's finish this operation. Let's get the ark to Jerusalem. And they're bringing the ark into Jerusalem. And you see a change in him. He's leading in a different way. The people in Israel are changed. It's like, okay, we're going to do this the right way this time, right? We're going to carefully obey what's written and do what God's told us to do. And so they use the poles. They put them through the rings. They're, you see radical obedience that is following an awareness that a holy God is a gracious God. And what we also see, and I think this dominates the text, is we see David begin to radically worship God with expressive, humble, joyful, unashamed worship. And that's the third point this morning that we'll close with. We see David as he is experiencing God's holiness and His grace moved to worship God. Right? That's what we see in verses 14 through 19. In verse 14, what does it say? It says, And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And this passage teaches us some really important things about gospel-fueled worship. And we know, like this morning, we know that worship involves more than just what we're doing right here, right? We understand that worship goes beyond this room, that worship is a lifestyle, that worship is our response to who God is communicated through His Word in our heart Worshiping Him, glorifying Him, honoring Him in all areas of our life. Making Him big, me decreasing, Him increasing, magnifying the Lord in all areas of our life. We understand that that goes beyond this time on Sunday mornings, right? But what we do on Sunday mornings, when we gather together to worship as a community of faith, is certainly a significant part of our worship. And I think that's actually the more direct application of this text in our life. When you think about what David's doing, David's literally leading worship service in the nation of Israel right here as he's dancing around. He's the worship leader and people are worshiping. It's a corporate worship service that's happening in Israel. And I want you to notice three things about their worship. Three things about David's worship. One, he's worshiping humbly. It says David danced before the Lord with all of his might. Some people like call this like the David dancing naked passage. All right? He might even say David danced naked in your, in your Bible. But... That's actually not the right translation. It is actually, David is actually what he's done is he's stripped off those really kind of high and prestigious royal garments and he's stripped down to what would have been the priestly linens. So wife's not a fan of it. Right? We'll see that in a moment. She thinks that this is, an, this is too undignified for a king to act like that. But in verse 22, he responds to her and says, I'll make myself more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. In other words, David's saying, hey, if I, I just, if I've just collided with the truth once again in a fresh way that the holy God of the world has also been so gracious to me, has extended mercy to me, has given me what I don't deserve. He's holy, but He's good, and He's gracious. And if I look low and unglorified and undignified in front of all these people as I'm worshiping worshiping Him, let it be, all right? Because it's all about God. It's not about me. It's my honor to get low and to not guard my reputation and to strip down to my linens and to be more undignified so that God can be more glorified. Boy, this is different than Saul, isn't it? Saul was all about Saul sitting high and mighty on the throne. And here we have David getting low, setting an example for all in the kingdom that this is all about God and it's all about worshiping Him. And I'm not, I'm not worried about me looking low and looking less than dignified. I'm worried about God being glorified and people remembering that about this day 
in my reign. All right, consumed with a passion for glory and the majesty of God, we see him worshiping humbly. Well, the second thing we see him doing is worshiping joyfully. All right, here we go. Y'all ready? He's been shook by the holiness of God. He's been freshly made aware of the grace of God. And it says David is worshiping with expressive joy. All right, he's dancing, he's leaping, he's celebrating. They got their instruments out, they're playing music. It is a joyful, worshipful atmosphere. You know what? The Bible commands us over and over again in the New Testament to rejoice in the Lord. You know, that's a commandment, right? To practice joyful living and to also come into this place on Sundays and to practice and to participate in joyful worship through music. It's okay to come into this place on Sundays and to worship God through song with joy in our heart that occasionally shows up on our face. I had somebody tell me one time when I preached something like this, well, I mean, I don't know if I totally agree with you because see, worship for me, corporate worship through music for me is actually a time for me to kind of reflect on my sin, for me to confess my sin, and for me to grieve my sin. And that is certainly something that we should do in worship. If there's sin in our life, worship through music with our community faith is a time for us to be aware of our sin and for us to deal with our sin. But you know what also every single week is an opportunity for us to do is to deal with our sin, but at some point to make it to the cross. At some points to make it to an empty tomb and to get overwhelmed once again with joy that God has cast my sin as far as the east is from the west. And therefore it is okay and it is actually really normal and healthy for Christians to worship through songs of grace with smiles on our faith, face with some expression. All right, if you agree with that, say amen. All right, there you go. There was a good, unanimous, solid Baptist vote this morning that it's okay for us to be joyful in expressing our worship on Sunday Mornings when we gather right here. Yeah, Pastor, see, here's the thing. You know, music's not really my thing. Like, singing's not really my thing. Expressing myself through song really isn't my thing. And some, some guys struggle with this because some guys, they see singing. They see expressing yourself emotionally. You're like, man, I never cried at a sunset. I don't cry at movies, man. I'm not expressive, right? So I mean, like, I, I'm not the singer. I was the guy on the football field, not in the high school's rendition of Fiddler on the Roof. I'm not like the singer. I'm not expressive. And, and what you may mean is it just doesn't feel manly. Listen, remember who we're seeing demonstrating humble, expressive, joyful worship right here with no care what anybody else thinks. It's David. Who is David? David killed a bear. David slayed a giant and then cut the giant's head off, the giant that everybody was afraid of, and carried the head around town for a few days. Have any of you ever done that? That's pretty manly if you ask me. The issue has nothing to do with manliness and everything to do with humility and remembering our salvation like David does, that I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I was dead, but Jesus came and found a rebellious sinner like me and raised me to new life and made me alive. Therefore, when I come into service on Sunday mornings, it's okay to express some joy. In fact, it's really healthy and it's really normal. And then third, he's worshiping unashamedly. In verse 20 and 21, David's wife criticizes his worship. What does she say? She implies in what she says that he's acting beneath the office out there in those priestly linens. He's dancing around before God. And you're, like, you're embarrassing yourself, David. But it doesn't face him. It's a great example right here. It doesn't face him. David 
David's worship is for an audience of one. For David, it's all about the Lord. For David, it's all about God's opinion, God's desire, God's expectation. And David's like, hey, God is the one who's holy. God is the one who's gracious. God is the one who saved me. He alone is worthy of my humble, joyful, all-in, passionate, and expressive worship. And people can criticize me. People can misunderstand me. People can mislabel me. And they can judge me all that they want. I am not stopping that. And for us, some people are going to want to be our critics, Christ follower. Some people are going to want to judge your life when you seek to be an unashamed worshiper of Jesus Christ. And critics will always... You're always going to find somebody with an opinion. You're always going to find somebody with some critique. You know, before I go to eat somewhere, like many of you, I get on Yelp or I get on Google Reviews or something and I check out if it's a new restaurant what people are saying about it. Right? I want to hear if they're saying that it's good or if it's bad. Same thing with movies. Check out reviews. I like to read the critic, critical reviews. Uh, you know, take a look at the critic scores. And all those things are based on opinion. We live in a very opinionated culture. And in fact, we all, in the culture that we live in, we're all product of it. We all like being a critic and sharing our opinion. And being a critic's really easy. Right? It's easy to say the food is good or the food is bad. It's easy to say that the movie's good or the movie's bad. At home yesterday, it was really easy for some of y'all to sit at home as a couch critic and to say that that play was good or that play was bad. It's a lot harder to be the coach of that game, of a Division I college football team. It's a lot harder to be the cook that people are sending in reviews about. It's a lot harder to make the movie than to judge the movie. It's way more difficult to give the criticism and actually do that work. Judging is easy. Criticism is easy. Having an opinion is easy. And everybody's got one. Our opinion is full of critics. And someone, as a Christian, will want to come along continuously in your life. And they'll want to give you their opinion about how you're to live your Christian life. Now, I'm not talking about accountability within a community of faith. You know, that's something we talk about. And that's certainly something that we need. What I'm talking about, one, is the reality that we live in a culture... And this is continuing to grow more and more intense that wants to criticize biblical faithfulness. That wants you to value what they value. And David's example reminds us that we're called to be unashamed worshipers of the one true living God. We're called to unashamedly worship Him and to follow His Word and to value what God values no matter what anybody thinks of us. No matter what it is. Whether it's the sanctity of human life, born and unborn, whether it's a biblical view of sexuality, that God's designed marriage to be between a man and a woman. We don't allow critics to pressure us to conform. We stand on God's word and we worship God who is worthy of our praise. And two, and I think this may even be a more direct application of this text, we don't let criticism in the church hinder us from worshiping God. Humbly, Or joyfully, we worship Him unashamedly, even within the church, because people have opinions, and people have personal preferences. And if that's you, be careful about how you criticize other people in their worship of God. Now, I was picking on the people a second ago that sometimes on Sundays come in and look like they're coming into a funeral more than they are an actual worship service for a living Savior, right? And I still stand by that. Smile, everyone, smile. It's good. But at the same time, some people passionately worship God in a more reserved way. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
And if you're more expressive in your worship, don't look down on people who aren't. And if you're more reserved in your worship and you think that you're the barometer for how to worship God with reverence, well, be careful with that too. Because you may have felt really uncomfortable worshiping next to David on that day. Don't be like Michael. Don't, let's not bring that critical spirit into this place on Sundays or Wednesdays. Instead, here's what we need to do. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. It's all about Him. Let's worship with humility and with joy and without an ounce of shame in light of His holiness and His grace. He is worthy of all of our worship. There is, when it comes to worship, going back to what I said at the very beginning of the message, when it comes to worship, there's always someone or something willing to receive your worship. When you come into this place on Sundays, we're not trying to get you to worship. You're already worshiping. What we're seeking to do together is to redirect that hardwiring in us to worship something towards Jesus who is worthy of our worship. And who as we follow Him in obedience and seek to worship Him with sincerity and with humility and with joy and with no shame, we find so much satisfaction in and so much joy and so much fulfillment. You're already worshiping something. You're already worshiping. We just need to redirect our worship to the Lord who's good, who's gracious, who's holy, who's merciful, who's majestic, and who's worthy of our praise. All right, let's pray. Let's pray.